I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to talk about Britney Spears versus Christina Aguilera. And I got to say, as a millennial, this is probably the biggest pop rivalry of our time. I mean, at least this side of NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. This is Coke versus Pepsi. Literally, they were the competing spokespeople. This is Windows versus Macintosh. This is Tamagotchi versus Nano Baby. This is the big one. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it truly is the Beatles versus Stones of late 90s teen pop divas. Uh, and in, in this scenario, Britney is the Beatles. You know, she became a big star first. She was more wholesome. And I think she ultimately set the pace for the rivalry. Christina, meanwhile, was the Stones. You know, she was the naughty one, especially when she decided to become ex-Tina during the <laughs> dirty era. Uh, that was pretty wild. Yeah, I have to say, I always, at the time at least, pretended to like Christina more because she always kind of seemed more like the underdog to me. And I thought if I said that I liked her more, that would make me appear more interesting, which, you know, shockingly, this this failed to occur. Uh, but <laughs> I definitely thought she had the much stronger vo- voice. And when I first heard what a girl wants, like, I really thought she was going to kind of go down the Mariah Carey R&B route and be her own thing more. I didn't really see her much as being pitted against uh, Britney, despite the obvious, you know, blonde pop comparisons. But, you know, you got to say, Britney's magnetism is just undeniable. I mean, she's Britney, bitch. I consider myself blessed (laughs) to grow up at a time when they both roamed the floors of TRL. Yeah, it really is a fascinating contrast. You know, Christina does have the more conventionally powerful voice. You can slot her in that Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, diva lineage a lot more comfortably than Britney. But Britney, to me, is the more distinctive stylist. You know, her voice might not be especially strong, especially compared with Christina Aguilera, 
but her phrasing is so unique. I mean, anyone who's ever heard Britney Spears can probably do a Britney Spears impression. I mean, she's like <laughs> Bob Dylan in that way. Uh, am I the first person to compare Britney Spears to Bob Dylan, by the way? That is that is up there. Yeah, no, that this, this is such a fascinating rivalry. I'm so excited we're doing this because I think that there's so much to learn because, you know, I don't think there was a lot to learn from Backstreet versus NSYNC other than maybe don't sign a contract with Lou Pearlman. But on yes. this side, I think there's an awful lot to learn here because it says so much about how we view women in our culture, how we discuss addiction and mental health, and just the challenges of fame in the digital age. And I think that both Christina and Brittany are sort of held up now as survivors of pretty much the worst treatment that I can think of that the media can dish out. And they made it out the other side. And I think it gives them a lot more significance than I ever would have imagined in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, they're both like relatively young still, but they've been yeah. through so much in their lives already at this point. But as you said, they are both survivors and we are here to salute them. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. So to get to the heart of this feud, you have to throw it all the way back to the all new Mickey Mouse Club in 1993. And the show still blows me away as just such an insane talent pull. I mean, you had J.C. Chazé, you had... Carrie Russell, you had Ryan Gosling, you had Justin Timberlake, and of course, Brittany and Christina. And it's interesting because in interviews with the show's producers years later, they would say that they got Christina chiefly because of her incredible voice, which was pretty much fully formed at that point, even though she was like, what, 11, 12, 13. The producers would describe watching her sing as almost like witnessing something divine. So she was, she was wow. full ex-Stina at that age. Um, and they hired Brittany mostly for her dance moves which they didn't think her singing was very strong, which is weird because when you watch all those early, early clips of Britney as like an eight, nine, 10 year old on Star Search and even some uh, Mickey Mouse Club clips, you can hear that she has a really strong voice. It's, it's interesting because it's unusual. It's really, really deep for a little girl. And there are all these conspiracy theories about how Jive Records forced her to sing in this sort of high-pitched baby with a head cold voice. And it messed up her actual singing voice, which was actually quite low, almost like Cher or something, or Miley Cyrus. So some would say that her, like, you know, as you said, her really distinctive vocal stylings is what made her a star. Others would say it kind of came at the cost of damaging her natural gifts. Whatever the case, she had it in her heart to be a singer. And being cast as kind of a second stringer to, uh, to Christina in this regard must have been really devastating for her. And yet, at the same time, Britney Spears, even though maybe she wasn't considered as good of a singer as Christina Aguilera, she was already, I think, the bigger star at this time. And it's fascinating when you, you know, go through all the episodes that we've had on this show, because often when you have rivals that knew each other when they were children, the dynamics that existed later on in their relationship were there from the beginning. And I think that with Christina and Britney Spears, there is this dynamic of Britney coming first and having more success and Christina always sort of lagging behind and aiming for her, as you said before, being the underdog. And not only that, did that exist professionally on the Mickey Mouse Club, but also personally, like this came out years later, but apparently Christina Aguilera had a thing for Justin Timberlake at this time. Oh. And of course, JT and Britney Spears already had their thing going on. So Christina was looking at Britney sort of maybe pining for her status on the show but also pining for what she had with Justin Timberlake. By the way, just a quick sidebar, we need to do a, a Britney Spears versus Justin Timberlake episode at some point. I oh, mean, a thousand percent. Oh my God, yes. You know, just the picture of them like in the denim tuxedos, you know, <laughs> like that photo. I just want to talk about that for an hour, but that will definitely be a good episode. 
But setting that aside, again, I think we can see that the dynamics that we're going to see play out in this rivalry between Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, it existed even back at the Mickey Mouse Club. And just as another sidebar, the interesting thing is I think Ryan Gosling also had a big crush on Britney. So imagine if Ryan dated Britney, Christina dated Justin Timberlake, the whole history of pop music in the early aughts could have been completely different. It's like such American a American history, right? I think, yeah. would be different. You know, we would be having flying cars now. There would be, you know, a cure for uh, coronavirus. All of the problems that we have, I think, would have been solved if fate had taken that direction. But unfortunately, it didn't. No, this is, that, that is quite a butterfly theory that I, uh, I, I never considered until right now. But... Unfortunately, we're stuck in this reality, and after the Mickey Mouse Club ends, Brittany goes back to this sort of semi-normal life. She attends this, uh, this religious private school in Mississippi. She was in talks with Lou Pearlman to join his girl group, Innocence, but that fell through, which was probably for the best after everything we know about Lou. And Brittany, though it's hard to imagine now, had a hard time getting a deal because this was the era of the Spice Girls and NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, and label chiefs thought that bands were actually a much easier sell than solo acts. So eventually, Britney gets an audition with Jive Records, and she blew them away with a cover of Whitney Houston's I Have Nothing, which, again, is an indication of the kind of stuff that she liked to sing at that time. And they loved it. They signed her. They flew her to Sweden in the spring of 1998 to record her debut album with producers Max Martin, Dennis Pop, who are probably the biggest pop architects of the last 25 years, maybe. Uh, And the result was Baby One More Time, which was a phenomenon pretty much from the moment it was released in January 99. And it was the biggest selling album ever by a teenage artist. Debuted at number one on the charts, went double platinum in two months, and then later on went diamond. And this is mostly on the strength of the album's lead single, Baby One More Time, which came out the uh, the prior fall. And uh, it was initially offered to both the Backstreet Boys and TLC, but they both turned it down because they were worried about the title seeming like it condoned violence. So that's, you know, another interesting offshoot of pop history right there. And... The song is just one of the greatest pop songs ever written. And, of course, it's given a boost by this video. Jive initially wanted to have an animated video, and Britney rejected it. She wanted it to be something that she thought her young fans could relate to, so she wanted to set it in a school. And the uh, the video is actually filmed in the school that they uh, filmed Grease in. And uh, during wardrobe fitting, they initially had her in jeans and a T-shirt, and it was apparently her idea to go with, I guess, her actual school, well, not her actual school uniform, but with a Catholic school uniform like the type she wore back home in Mississippi. And, of course, that became one of the most iconic music video moments ever, I'd say. Top oh, yeah. five, top three, definitely up there, at least for my age Certainly group. of that era, yeah, yeah. That's such an iconic image of her in the schoolgirl outfit. And this is also the beginning of this weird dissonance that exists with Britney Spears because... On one hand, you watch that video, and she's a beautiful young woman wearing a schoolgirl's outfit. And look, that's an archetype that is very heavily weighted in our culture. <laughs> yes. uh, let's just say that it's associated with certain forms of erotic cinema going on for <laughs> decades. You know, So when people see her in that outfit, it's not just, oh, this is like a cool music video. It comes with this history that an audience is bringing to it and projecting onto her. And not only... Does this prove to be popular, of course, with teenagers at the time, but it's also popular with the middle-aged male population (laughs) of the country. Uh, Very unseemly sort of dimension of her fandom, but it's undeniable that that was part of her appeal. And it also made her a very controversial figure in her time. So she has that element 
of her persona. But then she has this other element that when she does interviews, she's very guileless about her sexuality. When when reporters ask her, you know, are you sexually provocative in your videos? Like, why is this something that you're pursuing in your music? She would always act very coy about it and basically say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just wearing these cool clothes that I like. There's nothing unseemly about it. I'm just a nice Southern Christian girl who is a virgin, and I'm going to save myself for marriage. And, you know, we're going to talk about Madonna later because I think Madonna is an important figure in both of their careers. And, of course, she actually makes an appearance at a very important juncture for both (laughs) Brittany and Christina. But when we talk about Madonna, you know, she was someone who was always very deliberate about uh, the sexual provocation of her music and her persona. And she welcomed the intellectual element of that and people analyzing the subtext of her music videos and her music. Britney Spears did not, you know, like she would not entertain any sort of subtextual analysis of what she was doing. She would deny that there was anything provocative really about her videos. So again, there's this like weird dissonance where she's playing with these archetypes that are very heavily weighted in our culture. But at the same time, she's acting innocent. And it's hard to know sometimes like to what degree she's sincere about this. I I wonder if it is ultimately a reflection of Britney Spears maybe not being in total control of her image and career, which is going to be something that we see manifest itself later on in her life. Yeah, it's so tough to tell because, I mean, on one hand, some of the reports I've read was things that like, oh, the Baby One More Time video was her idea. And like the famous uh, Rolling Stone cover in 1999 when she's on the bed with the Teletubby with the the David LaChapelle shot was supposedly her idea too. So it's difficult to tell, you know, who was was in control of that. But yeah, her her responses in interviews are basically always like, well, what do you mean? I'm just being myself, which is such an incredible neutral answer because you can still continue to project whatever you want onto it. You can by by saying, you know, I I'm, I'm a good Southern girl and I'm I'm gonna save myself for marriage. I mean, she was a paragon of sort of '90s Southern values. But you're right. There was this whole other side there that um, that was pretty hard to deny. And and the, the dissonance is really funny. I mean, there was an article in 2001 where she's described in the same article, I think in the same paragraph, as America's reigning taboo temptress, and a couple lines later, America's most famous virgin in the same right. graph. So, yeah, it, it's very interesting because by teasing sex but still saying all the, you know, in quotes, right things to pass for conventional morality in 90s America. I think she succeeded in appealing, as you said, to kind of everyone. She was... Yeah, I mean, really, it could be like her genius that she was ambiguous like that, that she could play both sides of the fence and, you know, in some respects, be this wholesome pop star, but then on the other hand, also be, as they said, a taboo temptress, whatever (laughs) that means. Um, What I think is interesting in terms of her rivalry with Christina Aguilera, and and we're going to see this, is that I think... Christina was much more deliberate about her persona and her image and like the coyness that Britney Spears had does not exist with Christina Aguilera. And uh, to me, in a way that's like closer to like the Madonna model than Britney Spears was, although in a way Britney Spears was more successful at becoming the next Madonna. So I don't know, a lot to parse here. Right. I mean, by subverting maybe the the, the Madonna tr- archetype in her own unique way, maybe that that did help, especially for the era she was in. Uh, so Britney Spears in early 1999 is absolutely huge. Where does this leave Christina? Uh, after the Mickey Mouse Club, she ends up moving to Japan to record a duet with a Japanese singer. And then she teams up with Disney again for the song Reflections on the Milan soundtrack. 
And the success of that song led her to being signed by RCA in late 1999. And at this point, Buzz was starting to develop around Britney, and the label pretty much pressured her into crafting her into the similar pop mold as her former Mickey Mouse Club friend and rival. And this was a really a long way off from the soul and blues records that she admired as a kid. Uh, in the summer of 1999, she released Genie in a Bottle, uh, her debut album's lead single, which shot to the top of the charts in 20 different countries. Uh, her album followed in August, and it went eight times platinum, which wasn't as well as Baby One More Time, but still incredibly impressive. The thing that I always forget is that uh, Christina's debut had way more hits on it than Baby One More Time. They had three number ones. You had Genie in a Bottle, you had What a Girl Wants, and you also had her cover of, uh, uh, you also had Come On Over Baby, which I totally forgot about, and I played that while preparing for this episode. That is a killer song. It sounds like a Shirelle song from like 1964, but in like the best way, like something from the Sister Act soundtrack. It's so good. Like when you listen to both of these artists, it is interesting, as you said, to note the Christina Aguilera hits that get forgotten. Because I feel like her career is deeper in terms of just the number of hit songs that she's had. I think she's had uh, her albums, I think, generally are a little bit more interesting maybe than Britney's. Although Britney, um, I think, has put out like quite a few like pretty great records. But the thing with Britney, again, is that I just feel like she's like a more distinct personality like there's something about christina aguilera to me where she is a great singer but like if you heard like five seconds of her voice would you be able to distinguish her from like some other like big voiced pop (laughs) singer i mean i think it might be hard to do that whereas if you heard five seconds of britney spears singing like you know instantly that it's her and to me like that's the difference between them is that even if christina is having like more hits the hits that Britney is having, like it just seems like the big songs of hers from this era, like they all are iconic. Like we remember them, we remember the music videos. There's just a totality of packaging with Britney that maybe Christina doesn't quite have. Oh yeah, and it totally outshines the actual accolades that Christina was getting at this time. I mean, she, she had three number ones off that album and then another top five single with the uh, All For One cover, I Turn To You. She beat out Britney for uh, a Best New Artist at the Grammys that year. But like you said, she just always kind of seemed like the Jan Brady to Britney's Marsha. You know, it, is, it wasn't a case of NSYNC following Backstreet Boys and then quickly asserting themselves. She seemed at the time to be this kind of second stringer, which doesn't actually make sense when you look at all the data and all the music in front of you. Which, again, as you said, I think Britney, I guess, established herself more in a, in a unique way. But yeah, to me at the time, Christina just seemed like almost like an like an afterthought, like a like a bandwagon jumper, which I know really isn't true and vastly undermines her talents. And maybe another reason that kind of I feel this way looking back on it is because Christina seemed to go quiet for a long time in the mainstream American pop world. She released a Spanish language album in September 2000, and then a Christmas album soon after. But she wouldn't go back to the English speaking pop world until uh, 2002, stripped, and that's three years after her debut, which is you know, a lifetime in pop terms. So right. that, yeah, it was, was sort of an interesting move there. And I don't know if it was because it, of this was the era of like, you know, Latin and Latin influenced artists like on Enrique Iglesias and Lou Bega and Ricky Martin, or I don't know what the, the move was there with that. But um, yeah, it definitely kind of cost her some prime pop ears to go head to head with Britney, I guess. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. <laughs> My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. 
Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Christina would later say that this whole time going against Britney was really unpleasant for her because she just said, you know, this was sort of my old friend that she was speaking to the Daily Mail. She said, this was somebody I used to hold hands with. We were silly little girls together on the Mickey Mouse Club, and now we're pit against one another. So I I think on some level, she was kind of uncomfortable with that. I'm sure that was uncomfortable, and it was probably uncomfortable too because she was slotted into this pop lane that Britney Spears always had that it was going to be harder for her to establish her own personality, that in some way she was always going to be defined against Britney Spears. I mean, I think that might have happened anyway, even if she wasn't aggressively marketed in that same slot, basically, that Britney was in back in 99. I mean, again, they were both from the Mickey Mouse Club. They're both, you know, blonde female singers. They were both, again, working this lane of kind of like sexually provocative pop. Although, again, I think Christina was much more deliberate about that. And 
as we get into the stripped era and like the assless chaps era of, <laughs> of Christina, that's going to be you know even more explicit. Whereas Britney, again, I think even as she got older herself and started recording songs like I'm a Slave for You, you know, which is like just really laying it out there, she still maintained this distance between what she was doing musically in her persona and what she supposedly was like in her personal life. Again, too, like if you're looking at differences between these two, again, I think the vocal style is such a big key here that Christina is the more versatile singer. And I think as her career unfolded, she was able to do a wider variety of things than Britney Spears was doing. I mean, that's I appreciate the fact that she did a Spanish language album and a Christmas album. I think that showed early on that she didn't necessarily just want to be a pop singer, that she saw herself working in different arenas and, and being able to, to excel. And she does have the kind of voice that enables her to do that. Whereas Britney is, I think her vocal range is much narrower, but because she has this like distinctive style, I think it ultimately makes her a better pop star because that's what you want from your pop stars. You want to be able to hear them on the radio and instantly know it's them. And even if she doesn't have the range of Christina Aguilera, it's almost like she has like greater depth in like pop persona, like icon terms. You alluded to this earlier. I really think it's true. I mean, I remember like when Britney Spears first came on the scene uh, with that Baby One More Time video. And it did seem like she was already famous like the first time you saw that. You know, there was just something so fully formed about her from the beginning. And it's like, yeah, this is who she's going to be now, like for the rest of her career. And it's it's interesting. And just to go off what you said about how sort of they almost arrived fully formed. It's strange to me how early on the whole Christina bad girl thing seemed to be implanted in the public's mind. Because I went back and, and watched all of her early videos from her first album and, you know, magazine covers from that era and stuff. And it really didn't seem that far off from what, what Britney was doing. I mean, it, the sound was a little different. I mean, uh, Genie in a Bottle and um, What a Girl Wants was more R&B influenced, but it didn't really seem all that different. And so, but looking back on some of the articles written around the time, there was, there was a 1999 article in The Guardian that said that uh, Britney and Christina were at opposite ends of a troubling teen erotica spectrum uh, Christina has a naughtier image than Britney's corn-fed Midwest wholesome look. And I really had a hard time figuring out why that was. And I don't know if it's something about the troubling view that we have around race in this country, if that Britney was this white girl from the South and Christina was part Ecuadorian, lived in New York City, released a Latin language album, had more of an R&B bent, and she was more urban, in quotes, than, than Britney – and not just the music industry euphemism, but in a literal sense. And that tends to get viewed as dangerous and unsettling in certain parts of America. I don't know. I, I've never really been able to figure out where. The, I mean, I understand later on with Dirty and those kind of things. But this early, it still surprises me looking back on it, What, why she was seen as sort of the the dark flip side to, uh, to Britney. That's an interesting theory. I mean, I think, you know, that might have something to do with it. I think there's also just something ingrained in how we look at these things where if you have... Uh, you know, an alpha over here, you need a beta over here. If you mm. have a good girl over here, you need a bad girl over there. It's just how these narratives fall into place. It's like we have them already predetermined in our minds, and we just project them onto people. That is a theme of this show, I think you yeah. could say. That this is something we're constantly looking for in the culture. And when you have two artists that are similar, it's just easy to like lock them into these differing roles. Um, and I mean, it may just be the fact that Britney Spears was better 
at um, better might not even be the word. She was just more deliberate about distancing herself from what she did on stage. Whereas Christina Aguilera, I, I feel like she didn't really do that. I, I don't think that she play acted as like the good Christian girl in interviews to the same degree that Britney Spears did. So maybe that has something to do with it as well. But it's interesting to see how they like, I think for Britney and Christina, they both struggled, I think, to mature pretty soon after like they had that big flush of pop success in 1999. Yeah, I mean, Britney, I think, had a little easier time because she had a lot of sort of checkpoints along the way. You had the release of Oops, I Did It Again in May of 2000, which slightly more mature record with some traces of Christina's R&B influence. You got great tracks like Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know and, and Lucky, which is kind of a, you know, a, a mature song about the perils and loneliness of stardom. There's that Rolling Stones cover, which I never really figured out why that was there. And then, of course, there's the title track with the infamous I'm Not That Innocent, which is pretty on the nose, especially for, for a newly 18-year-old singer. But there you go. And she had another Rolling Stone cover that spring. Uh, but her big coming out moment as like, you know, an independent woman grown up artist was at the 2000 VMAs, which I have to say, I, I, I didn't engage much with, with pop culture at this time. I, I was 11, 12. Uh, I remember watching this and it made a, a deep impression. I remember she started singing off Satisfaction in like a Michael Jackson style suit fedora ensemble. And I was a big classic rock nerd even back then. So I was like, oh, cool. This is a song I actually know. All right. Awesome. And then with lightning speed, whiplash almost, uh, she, she rips off the suit for Oops, I Did It Again. And it was such a quick change, the see-through sequined outfit. It was just like, whoa, that I didn't see that coming. Uh, to me, that was her declaration of independence, although she was loath to call it that. She would later say of her, her sparkly uh, see-through outfit, I really wanted to be sparkly and have diamonds everywhere. So again, getting back to the always a neutral response whenever asked about any potentially provocative um, approach she takes, always gives this really like, I'm just being myself and you bring whatever you want to what I'm doing. You, you project onto whatever you feel, which as you said, I think is part of her genius. What even complicates this more for me is like when you go ahead to her uh, 2001 record, Britney, a self-titled record. Normally when artists do that, that means like, hey, I'm going to get real with you all now. <laughs> this, I'm, I'm talking about myself. And this is the record where she's reiterating the same message over and over again, where she's saying, don't treat me like a little girl. You know, this is her coming out as a woman, even though there is a song on the record called I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman. So she's like in this transitional period between, you know, being a teenager and she's entering womanhood, but she's not quite there yet. I guess you could call this like her college record in a way. Like this represents her college years. Uh, there's a song on the record called Overprotective where she sings, quote, say hello to the girl that I am. You're going to have to see through my perspective. I'm going to have to make mistakes just to learn who I am. And I don't want to be so damn protected. So you're seeing these like expressions of like not wanting to be defined as just this innocent little girl, but also not all wanting to be defined as like this sex kitten or something that she's being projected onto because of her music videos. That's sort of a muddy message. And then you get to like the big song from that record, which is I'm a slave for you. This uh, collaboration with the Neptunes. I think it's like one of her best songs. I, oh, yeah. I love this song. And that, and you can, again, hear the messaging going through that song where she talks about, like, I'm not a little girl. She's 
sort of like, again, coyly suggesting that like, you know, you might think I'm too young to do certain things, but I actually can do these certain kinds of things and I'm ready to do them. I'm ready to be a slave for you, which I don't know. I, did, is she talking about, uh, you know, doing work around the house when she says that? I don't <laughs> I don't think she means that. There seems to be, again, like a naughty connotation to that title, but it's interesting again to me. I, I just feel like there's an awkwardness to her growing up here because there's not like a full on embrace of like sort of either side of her persona. It's like she wouldn't just go out and record a Christian pop record and she wouldn't just go full on like stripper core music. You know, it was sort of like trying to achieve a happy medium, which I get, I think that worked well on her first record, but I think it starts to get like a little more awkward as she is growing into like a full grown woman. Yeah, I mean, you have the 2001 VMAs performance when she's doing Slave for You. That's the one with, with the, the snake, you know. I thought snake. It, was the, it was like a forbidden fruit kind of analogy there. Like, I am the forbidden fruit kind of thing. I mean, I'm probably reading way too far into this, but... No, yeah. you're not. Exactly. It's like one of those things where you're like, well, she's obviously alluding to that. But then if you point it out... You look like a creep. It's like, yeah, exactly. Like, you're the pervert for pointing right. that out. It, it just seems like obvious imagery, <laughs> like walking around with a snake... You know, that's like, yeah, the Adam's apple. Like, that's a very clear thing. But also it's like, well, I just like snakes. I just like I just like this snake. You know, that doesn't mean anything. It's interesting, though, because in this era, I, I think that she was really uh, got a lot of great reviews for this song. I mean, I, I they didn't get a lot of the pearl clutching that went on during Baby One More Time and certainly not the stuff that, that Christina was about to get for Dirty. I think. A lot of great reviews. I think the uh, one said this was a, a song is, is funk the way God intended it, which is, you know, an amazing review there. I, yeah, it's interesting to me how I, it's looking back on it. It definitely seems a little heavy handed, but I think at the time it was definitely well received. You know, I just have to do a quick sidebar here. Like I actually saw Britney Spears on this tour in 2001. What? I was working for a small town newspaper at the time and I was asked to review the concert and also to interview concert attendees. And uh, let me tell you something. It's a little <laughs> awkward to go to a Britney Spears concert in 2001 as like a 24-year-old single man and like walk up to uh, 13-year-old girls and ask them like what they think about Britney Spears. Uh, it's a little weird. It's like if, if you're if you're at this show and you're not with your girlfriend or you know like with your daughters uh, I just felt a little out of place uh, in that respect. But fortunately, no one called the police on me, and uh, it all ended up okay. As Britney is moving into her Britney album period, and of course we have Christina Aguilera moving into the stripped period in her single Dirty, which, as I said before, this is the famous music video where Christina is cavorting around in assless chaps. And uh, this is, I think, the beginning of her fully embracing, like, the sexual side of her music. Again, in a very different way than Britney Spears. Britney, again, playing the sort of the coy Christian girl who has a naughty side. Whereas Christina is just, like, a full-blown sexual warrior in, like, the Lust Olympics. You know, like, she is just going full bore uh, in this uh, in this new guise of hers. And, again, I go back to Madonna. I really feel that Christina was, I think following that template even more explicitly than Britney Spears. I think Britney took some things from Madonna in how to, you know, craft her persona and to have like this, again, this iconic pop image. Whereas I think Christina was, I think, following it in a more sort of like, almost like a guidebook way. It's like, okay, this is what Madonna did in her career. And now I'm going to make my own version of erotica, <laughs> but I'm going to pump it full of steroids. You know, and, and that's what I'm going to be doing on Stripped. You know, I, I definitely agree. 
she got a ton of blowback for just the song really and i remember at the time just outrage seemed to outrage everybody and watching it now like i know that the, the assless chaps thing and everything but looking at the lyrics it's not that far removed from genie in a bottle it's basically about having a night out with your girlfriends and i started thinking that the song and the video maybe some of the response to that was that it didn't exist to fulfill hetero male fantasies in some ways. I think that it was, you know, about her own empowerment. Whereas, you know, Britney has a song out in this era called I'm a Slave for You, about being a, you know, slave to a man. Uh, or is it about music? I actually forget what which one's about. But I thought that the the backlash, when you watch the video for Dirty back to back with the video for I'm a Slave for You, they're not that different. And I feel like the amount of flack that Christina got versus uh, Brittany, who was effectively praised for doing something not that different, was really unfair. And I, I definitely think that there was a certain amount of sexism at play. And I don't know if it was because, uh, one, Brittany's video seems more designed for the male gaze versus Christina's. I don't know. But it, it's, it's interesting to look back on. And it's really horrible. A lot of the really misogynistic views that Christina got in this period, calling her like, you know, a Pop-Tart who is spanked like the naughty girl she is and direct from an intergalactic hooker convention. There's some really, like, incredibly awful lines when you look back on it describing the uh, the dirty video. It, it, it's fascinating, and it's sad in a lot of ways. You know, not to keep going back to this, but I think maybe it just comes down to Britney Spears giving viewers this, like, plausible deniability that mm. it actually wasn't as sexual as it was. You know, just because, again, she was so guileless about her own image in interviews— Whereas I think Christina Aguilera was like more upfront and like not as apologetic about it. And maybe that was just easier for people to sort of contextualize at the time that it's like, well, we can take shots at Christina Aguilera because she's not acting like the good Christian girl in interviews. Like she's just, she's expressing herself honestly in her music. And so we're going to punish her for that. I think one thing too, that must be noted about Stripped, you know, we, we talk about Dirty, but I think the most lasting song from that record is... I think also the best Christina Aguilera song, which is beautiful, uh, which is it's like this classic empowerment ballad that uh, also existed with like the sex songs on that record. I mean, there's also like a lot of empowerment songs on that record. And, you know, I think if you're going to compare Christina Aguilera to Britney Spears, this is one area like where Christina Aguilera just like slays Britney Spears. I mean, like this big kind of torch song oh, ballad, yeah. you know, Christina Aguilera, that's like firmly in her wheelhouse and she just crushes it. Whereas you think about like Britney Spears ballads, like, you know, again, like I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. I don't think those are her strongest songs. I tend to prefer, you know, like the funky dance pop songs from Britney. I think that's better suited for her voice. Whereas with Christina, yeah, you set up a song like Beautiful and she's just going to knock it out of the park. So, you know, she was also doing songs like that at this time. Yeah, I think Beautiful definitely added another dimension to the songs like Dirty and Fighter on the album, too. It really, it, that is an incredible song. And the video for that, too, seems really ahead of its time. I mean, it's almost 20 years old, but just sort of the the identity politics, if you will, that's sort of wrapped up in that video is, is really uh, astonishing to see now. It's, it's such an incredible song, and you're right. I mean, she, no one can sing those types of torch power ballads like Christina, at least in that era. So what we've seen so far from these two is I think them being compared to each other a lot in the press, but there's not a whole lot of like sniping at each other, at least not publicly. That really doesn't begin to happen, I don't think, until the aftermath of the 2003 Video Music Awards. I mean, is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. I, I love 
I mean, we love the VMAs in general on the show, but oh, yeah. this performance in 2003 is just in my top five favorite of all time. It's of course, you got Britney, you got Christina, and then you got Madonna. It's just, it's, it's one for the ages. And yeah, it, it just seems like perfectly set up for these three just enormous pop culture figures to come together. It's like the pop music version of like when Pearl Jam and Neil Young performed together <laughs> 10 years earlier. Like what that was for grunge, that's what yes. this is for pop. You have like the legend from, you know, a previous generation coming together to perform with like the hot pop divas of the moment. And of course, they're going to come together and they're going to sing Like a Virgin, uh, which was an iconic moment from the VMAs back in 1984 when Madonna came out in the wedding dress and she has the bouquet, of course, and she ends up humping the floor and everyone loves it and pop history has changed forever. <laughs> this performance in 2003, it's going to uh, very deliberately allude to that performance. We see at the beginning, and by the way, you can watch this on YouTube and you may want to just pause this podcast and watch that quick and then come back uh, because... If you haven't seen it in a while, it is really it fun to revisit. Up. So we see a big cake on stage. Britney Spears is on top of the cake. She has the veil on, but of course she's singing and we could tell it's Britney Spears right away because like we said, very distinctive voice. And she has like a solid minute or so where she's on stage yeah, singing the first verse and she walks down the cake, you know, and she's having her moment. And then the chorus comes along. And Christina Aguilera isn't at the top of the cake. She walks, like, behind the cake. The employee's entrance. Exactly. From behind the cake, she comes out. And before she starts singing, she kind of gives Britney this, like, little, like, she blows her a kiss, uh, which seems like a a middle finger, like, when you watch it. Does that seem very affectionate? And, of course, Christina, I feel like she's, like, over singing more than usual on the chorus. It just sounds like, okay, I'm going to, like, just take over this song uh, by sheer force. She's like a foghorn. Yeah, exactly. She's just foghorning like a virgin, trying to blow Britney off the, off the stage. But Britney is holding her own, you know. And after the chorus, they start doing this thing like where, again, they're trying to recreate the original Madonna performance. So Britney and Christina are both humping the floor. Writhing in tandem. Yeah, like, and they're humping the floor while facing each other. It's like competitive floor humping. And... <laughs> It's like I can I can like hump this floor better than you. No, I can hump this floor better than you. Like that's what they're doing at this moment. Then all of a sudden you hear like the wedding march music and everyone stops and looks up and of course it's Madonna. She's wearing her like Marlena Dietrich like black suit with like a top hat and she comes down the stairs very gingerly cuz she's wearing like, you know, 12-inch heels or something. And they're doing a dance together. They're like waltzing together. They're doing all these things. And then, of course, the big moment happens. And Madonna turns to Britney Spears first, gives her a big wet kiss. (laughs) Instant iconic moment. We all remember that. Then something very strange happens. The director of the VMAs decides to cut to a very taciturn looking Justin Timberlake in the audience. Do you think Justin Timberlake was, was angry? Was he like jealous? Was he like into this I, I, I all the it seemed like it broke him it seemed like he was having trouble processing all of that in that moment you they cut to him and he, he looks more confused i think than anything else he's definitely has a lot of feelings that he's going through it's, it's a whole kaleidoscope of emotions in his face in that two second shot and you know i have to say like kudos to the director for doing this because i think we all thought like oh what does justin timberlake think of this like we know he's in the audience <laughs> What does he think of this? Like, I want to see Justin. But what this ends up doing is because we're looking at Justin, when they cut back to the stage, we only see the very end 
of Madonna kissing Christina Aguilera. And this is a moment that just, again, it, it encapsulates their dynamic. Britney Spears gets the great, you know, shot of her kissing Madonna. It's a freeze frame that we all remember. Just a great pop moment. And then Christina's trying to have her own pop moment, and they cut away. They cut away to just refer to a narrative in Britney Spears' career with, with Justin Timberlake. And Christina Aguilera is like, ends up being pretty pissed off about this. Oh, yeah, genuinely so. I, just look, 15 years later, she was on Andy Cohen, and, and he asked her about this. And she said, yeah, it was weird. It was kind of a, she said it was a cheap shot when they cut away. And, uh, and at the time, she gives an interview to, uh, to Blender. And this is when she actually really starts taking um, public snipes at Britney, which she's sort of refrained against from this point. She's talking to Blender in December 2003, and she says that Britney was distant, to use her words, during their many rehearsals for the show. Uh, every time I tried to start a conversation with her, well, let's just say she seemed nervous the whole time. She seems like a lost little girl, someone who desperately needs mm. guidance. Oof. And look, as we just discussed, Britney put out a record, 2001's Britney, where the whole point of that record was, I'm not a little girl. Don't call me a little girl. So, like, going with the little girl thing, not good. We're going right for the jugular here. And, of course, you know, Britney Spears hears this, and she says, a lost girl? I think it's probably the other way around. I can't believe she said that about me. And then she tells this story, which seems extremely plausible to me. I can definitely imagine this happening. I don't think she's exaggerating. She talks about how she was in a club, like I guess a few years before this interview, uh, and Christina Aguilera comes up to her and like, like sticks her t tongue down Britney Spears' throat. And Britney Spears is like, what? What is this all about? Oh, hi. And, and yeah, like, come on, how about a handshake? Or uh, <laughs> how about a, you know, like a little uh, sist like sister hug or something? Uh no, goes right for the tongue. And uh, Brittany says, and this is like her relating the story. She says, I say, it's good to see you. And she goes, well, you're not being real with me. I was like, well, Christina, what's your definition of real? Going up to girls and kissing them after you haven't seen them for two years? And it's like, yeah, uh, Brittany, I think you have a point there. Uh, it's a little odd uh, to have done that. So, you know, we are now in the part of the rivalry where they are openly sniping at each other in the press. Which is a very fun part of the rivalry. But also in this era, they're competing in a different arena. They're competing for commercial sponsorships, which is really, really fun, I have to say. Because it really did get kind of catty between them through these commercial sponsorships. The big one, of course, is the Soda Wars. It's like the D-Day of the, the Christina-Britney uh, commercial war. Britney, of course, delivered a series of really iconic ads for Pepsi. You know, there's the retro-tinged, for those who think young, with the joy of Pepsi jingle. Incredible series of ads. Uh, Christina does a Coke ad that I didn't even remember. I, I had to Google it. Uh, I guess it's kind of funny. It's about a fan who wins a chance to be on set with Christina, and he keeps fainting. I, I have no memory of that at the time. Uh, no. So Britney definitely wins that round there. Um for a while, in 2001, Britney was the face of Skechers' shoes. And then after a lawsuit with the shoe company, Britney backed out. Uh, who did Skechers get immediately after uh, Britney left? They got Christina. Man, it's like, why doesn't Christina just say no? I'm right. not going to do that because you are now openly embracing this narrative that I am the second choice. Right, and exactly. it's like, you can't get Britney, so you're going to get me. And we're just seeing this get reiterated all over again. It's like, whether it's endorsements or it's the MTV VMAs. And you can see that I feel like it's starting to get to Christina's head a little bit because 
when it comes to sniping in the press, it seems like it's mostly generated by Christina Aguilera and like her taking shots at Britney, even like when it's kind of mean and like overly personal. Like there's that story about like when uh, Britney Spears got married. Oh, I think it was in 2004 to Kevin Federline. And I, you know, Kevin Federline was, I, th- I think he was a dancer like on her tour. I think that was that- it. Yeah. And, you know, pretty much a dirtbag, you know, like not a great guy. He did not deserve Britney Spears at all. Uh, But, uh, you know, Britney was looking for somebody and I guess he was there. Right time, right place. Apparently, Britney bought her own engagement ring, which was something that Christina decided to take a shot at. She did an interview where she says, it looks like she got it at QBC. And then she says, I know Britney. She's not trailer trash. But she sure acts that way. Damn. Uh, so, yeah, you know, taking a shot at, like, her wedding ring and, like, her marriage seems like a little below the belt. Uh, Brittany, to her credit, she made overtures to make friends with Christina Aguilera. In 2005, she wrote her a letter apparently telling her how beautiful she looks, which kind of weird to do. Is that is that normal to do? Like, do you write text to your friends and comment on how attractive they are is it am i just a bad friend for not doing this i i I just feel like this is maybe a little weird to do yeah that's definitely unless somebody's like fresh out of like some kind of like you know plastic surgery or something i don't think yeah i don't think i would think to do that but the important thing is is that she's trying to make friends with christina her old mickey mouse club chum and it sounds like it kind of worked i mean britney spears had a had a child uh, in, in 2005, and Christina Aguilera apparently, like, sent her a big, like, basket full of presents. Aww. So we're on the mend here, maybe. Right, and this is also in the era when Britney sort of began to descend into her very well-documented personal troubles in, in 2006, 2007. She had a messy divorce with Kevin Federline and a stay at a rehab facility. And I think that following Britney's uh, so-called comeback performance at the 2007 VMAs, when she looks kind of completely lost on stage during uh, Gimme More. Uh, I, I think Britney, t- to take a shot at Britney just wasn't, you, you don't do that. It felt like common decency kicks in at that point because she was clearly going through a tough time. And and this happened with Christina. She gave an interview to the Daily Mail uh, in 2008. She said, I don't pass any judgment on what she does. There have been so many stories about the two of us not getting on. We don't keep closely in touch with one another. And it's obvious how our lives have taken on two different directions. Uh, but she indicated that the entertainment industry rather than, you know, any personal differences between the two were responsible for their supposed rivalry and that the press had blown it all out of proportion. So she kind of tried to smooth things over around that time. So they've made peace, but there's like one little sort of echo of strife that occurs in 2012 when Christina and Brittany are both judging reality shows, which is a very interesting juncture now that exists in pop stars' careers. I feel like this is like the new thing that like, pop stars get into as like they're like like their post peak moment it's like before they're gonna go full-blown into vegas right they're gonna have this residency like where they're on a reality show you know judging aspiring pop singers like they're gonna be like uh like mickey uh, in the rocky movies like they're gonna be the trainer now of aspiring pop singers and like you know squirting the water in their mouth and you know telling them to like you know box sides of beef and all that stuff in the pop singer sense, of course. Uh, but there was this thing like that. Like Christina was on The Voice. She was first on that show. She was on that show in 2011. And then Britney ends up being on the show X Factor in 2012, the Simon Cowell show. It must be said that like in this respect, Christina, I think, comes out ahead of Britney. Like this is an example of like Christina actually 
being in the number one position while Britney is in the second place position because The Voice is like a much bigger show to me than X Factor. Am I wrong on that? Oh yeah, the first uh, couple, the cast from the first couple seasons when Blake Sheldon and Christina were, was on the cover of Rolling Stone. I mean, they they were you know the the four of them were were, were pretty iconic in that era. It's just like you know a, a, a foursome. Yeah, no, and and I don't actually remember how many seasons X Factor lasted in the United States, but I don't think it was very long. But there was like a little bit of strife here because you know Britney's coming onto X Factor, and I think on like her first show. NBC decided to run a special edition of The Voice to run against X Factor. And I know like Simon Cowell apparently got upset about that because he felt like this is an example of NBC and maybe even Christina Aguilera trying to upstage Britney in her moment. I mean, I don't know. I mean, do you think that Christina Aguilera was like controlling like the levers of power at NBC and was like, hey, put me on versus Britney. Let me stick it to Britney. I mean, I, I have a hard time believing that that's what happened. I mean, my better self, I would like to think that that didn't happen. But I know Cowell apparently thought that, that might have been a play. I think he even gave an interview where he was like, yeah, you know, Brittany's not going to appreciate this. She and Christina have been a bit of a rivalry over the years. So who knows? I mean, it definitely would make it more fun. But really at this point, I think it's fair to say that whatever tensions existed after the 2003 VMAs debacle, uh, it seems like it's pretty much cooled off at this point. Oh, yeah, definitely. Christina, I think for International Women's Day in 2018, uh, posted something on Instagram, a, a video series of a bunch of powerful women in her life. And I think Hillary Clinton was one, Lady Gaga, and, and Britney made the cut too, which was which was very nice. So I think that whatever uh, went went down between them in the past is water under the bridge now. Yes, peace through Instagram videos. You know, if, if we can... <laughs> All hope for a similar fate in our own lives. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. 
Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Okay, we've now reached the point of our episode where we give the pro side of each side of the rivalry. Let's talk about Christina Aguilera first. You know, I think we've reiterated this uh, a lot in this episode, but I think it's clear that she is the better conventional singer. She's much more versatile. She's done like a lot of different kinds of music in her career, which I think is pretty admirable. I also wonder if like ultimately she's in a better place personally at this point. I mean, we haven't really delved into like all the strangeness of Britney Spears' personal life and like how she's like kind of not in control of her own life at this point, which is really strange. And at some point I want to watch a documentary about Britney Spears that like really kind of breaks that down because... I'm not quite clear on like what's going on with her, but at any rate, I think Christina Aguilera seems like she's just, you know, she's been through a lot in her career, but she made it out the other side. And I, I still think that she could have like another hit. Like I, I don't think that her pop career is necessarily behind her because she really is a survivor. Oh yeah, absolutely. I see her as being kind of like in the share mold. She has, a, she has that voice. It, it, it is timeless. And I know that's such a cliche thing to say, but like, you know, she did all those songs come back to basics. They sound like like big band songs from the 40s. She has a voice that's so adaptable. She could do torch songs like Beautiful. She could do jazzy things like Ain't No Other Man. I mean, she, she could she could do like a Judy Garland album or something if she wanted to. I think she she has a long career as a sort of, you know, in quotes, ma- mature uh, singer ahead of her. I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, she's an incredibly talented singer and she was, wrote most of the songs on her albums too, which I, I, we haven't talked enough about. I mean, she, she's a very talented writer. And as you said, I think, frankly, the one I'd, I'd rather be if I had to pick between the two. Uh, and I imagine probably Christina would say the same thing too because I'm a big uh, free Britney truther here. And yeah, I think what, what's being done there with the conservatorship isn't right. So I think that Christina definitely landed in a, in a better place. So if we go over to the pro Britney Spears side, I mean, look, I just think Britney to me is just more iconic. I mean, you think about her in the baby one more time guys, like with the Catholic school outfit, it's just a defining image of late nineties pop, maybe the defining image in her biggest songs like baby one more time. Oops. I did it again. I'm a slave for you. Toxic, which we didn't talk about toxic at all in this episode. Such an amazing song. They're just more memorable to me. Uh, and while she's not as good of a singer as Christina Aguilera, to me, she is the superior vocal stylist. I just don't know that Christina Aguilera is all that distinct from like other big voice divas, like as good as her voice is. 
But Britney's voice to me, it's just instantly recognizable. It's like one of the most recognizable voices in all of pop music history. Do you uh, do you think you could take a crack at the uh, at the Britney voice, Stephen? Uh, bye, 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 bye. <laughs> that's pretty good. Pretty good. I give myself a six yeah. out of ten for that. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. I agree. I mean, Britney is a legend. I mean, one of the greatest performers of our time. I mean, amazing dancer, which I, I don't think we talked enough about. Uh, and, and yeah, her singing quality, it, it, you instantly know it's hers and, and you love it. And I think she's up there like with Elvis or Michael Jackson or Jim Morrison. She's got that level of just, she's that identifiable, but there's a vulnerability there too. I think that was always there that made her just someone that we sort of brought in a little closer, especially with what happened to her in later years with the conservatorship and everything. I think there, there's, you tend to root for her more, I think, these days too. I can't think of a fandom that is more supportive than Britney's fans of Britney, I have to say. And um, yeah, no, I, 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 I love them both, but I might love Britney a little more. So when we think about Britney and Christina together, look, I mean, we love friction on this show, obviously. We love delving into different conflicts. So this sort of thing is just catnip to us. But I will say that just generally speaking, like when you're dealing with like prepackaged pop stars, if you don't have like a little bit of conflict, things can get boring really quickly. And I like the fact that even though the, you know, pop music machinery tried to slam Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera into the same slot, they still managed to have their own personalities. And in many ways they were contrasting personalities. And the fact that you had one person over here that was like really iconic in Britney Spears, but then you had someone else in Christina Aguilera that that could kind of balance her out. It just makes the story more interesting. So I'm glad that they were both around in the late 90s to just soothe our teen pop wants and desires. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, you can enjoy them both. And picking your favorite is kind of part of the fun. Exactly. And again, like I said, we love conflict on this show. And is it fair to say that, oops, we did it again? In this episode, <laughs> that is is far from a toxic pun, Stephen. That is that is a good oh, one. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode of Rivals. We will be back with more beefs and feuds and long simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtalk. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. 
Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.